Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Listeners, I'm your host, Pastor Alex, back at it once again with another new episode. Uh, we are continuing our journey through the sacraments, and doing so, we are looking at, uh, at a whole bunch of different scripture and a bunch of different texts, and we're going to examine some of this scripture today, and we are going to uh, start to really unpack what the Bible says around the Lord's Supper. Last week, we focused very be- at the very beginning of Matthew 26 with the uh, words of institution, the night in which Jesus was betrayed. This is what he did. He broke bread, gave thanks, gave it to all, saying, take and eat, this is my body given for you. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to all to drink, saying, this is the new, this cup is the new, uh, my blood is the New Testament in which the forgiveness of sins comes to you. I'm paraphrasing the back half of it there. But the premise surrounding uh, the Lord's Supper is one that seems to be a hot topic. It's uh, controversial because we uh, want to argue, as we talked about last week, whether Christ is uh, physically, bodily present in and with and under the bread and wine, or is he spiritually present around us as we partake in this? Or is he just not ex- not present at all and he just gives us this command to do? So there's, there's those three major uh, views to understanding the Lord's Supper. Obviously, the Lutheran position is that Christ is bodily present. However, we differ from the Catholics where once they bless the bread, they then think it turns into the physical body and blood of Jesus. In fact, with the Catholic view, they would venture to go and try and re-crucify Jesus every week that they partake in the Lord's Supper. Uh, Obviously, we as Lutherans do not believe in that. Our position is solely based upon how Luther read and understood scripture, 
when we come to a text like this where Jesus is physically holding up an object saying, this is my body and blood, we take that as a literal interpretation. It doesn't mean we take all of scripture literally, but it means we, we understand the differences of literary terms, uh, languages being used, and you know, objects being displayed or talked to. Um, just as, like I said in last week, you know, with the means by which Jesus healed the blind man, his spit in the mud, Jesus is holding up bread and wine here to convey that promise to us that it has, will be something that's instituted, given to the church, that a promise is wrapped into it. And the promise of that is the forgiveness of sin. And I find conversations um, over and over again against those in the reform camps that just they they, they want to hold on to their presuppositionals because this is what they've been taught and it's understandable because I came from this camp myself and they they want to go and argue against these scriptures and they do a lot heavy have they do much more heavily on baptism um, but when we start to understand and pick apart the Lord's Supper we can see the same style of arguments being displayed uh, Jesus, you know, and, and they try to pit faith alone against baptism. And and the Lutheran's just going to say, yeah, amen to both. Because why can't it be both? And I find oftentimes we like to take our presuppositions and then we cram it all into a little box and we try to make it all nice and pretty. And, but when we, when we start to do that, we uh, are, are essentially cutting out any, means by which other interpretations can exist. And we want to say it is only my view that is right. And there's nothing else that could possibly come against this view, even though in some many circles that particular view has only been around really for about four or 500 years. And they want to, they, they, they don't want to give any sort of leeway because it's my way or the highway. And, and I've come across quite a few, not everybody, obviously. I've had great conversations with people who are in the reform circles, and we have, you know, amazing conversations, very civil discourse, and we, we talk through our differences, we ask each other questions, we answer the questions, and we uh, come to a good, firm understanding of where each person comes from. And then there are many uh, that like to lash out and just go off the deep end. And to me, that's deeply troubling. And... Anytime you go and say Jesus was present in the body or in the bread and wine, he was bodily present. Uh, people like to get all up in arms. They they want to find a means by which um, they can argue with you with uh, or argue with you from, and they they will do this. And uh, you know it it just it's saddening and and frustration frustrating because. I personally want to have these conversations because I understand f looking from the outside into Lutheranism, looking from the Calvinistic perspective. I was a five-point tulip, uh, fire-breathing Calvinist for many years. And when I went to a Lutheran seminary and I had made that comment, I got, I got some looks. Like People were like, how can you reconcile that? And, I'm, and I never thought... I, I couldn't. I always thought I'm like, well, I can always just teach, you know, teach from my Calvinistic perspective, preach from my Calvinistic perspective in a Lutheran church, and 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 none would be the wiser. 
And then I actually got into seminary and started taking classes and realized my presuppositions were, were rooted in just what I was reading on the internet or what I read in maybe one or two books and, and not rooted in scripture and not rooted in uh, the early church fathers and, you know, in, in, you know, church tradition, because again, the reform circles, they, they want to kind of throw away church tradition and say that it's only, if it's not found in scripture, then we possibly shouldn't adhere to it, which is quite ridiculous. Um, and so traditionally we, we see the Lord's supper being displayed and we'll, we'll get into the, the text from the early church fathers here, uh, in the next couple episodes, but we'll, we'll see how the early church read and understood these passages that we're going to go over today. And we will understand and unpack those and, and try and hope and try and hope that we can, uh, come to this conclusion that this is something that the church has believed for many years. And yes, I will admit the, the, the Catholic view has been distorted. Um, but for the first few centuries, uh, we were, we were all in agreement and then we move, um, into kind of once Rome was established, uh, it starts to get distorted over time. And then we get to the reformation and, uh, Luther tries to go back to the early church fathers and go back to scripture and say, no, this is what the text is telling us. Uh, and then we have Zwingli saying, no, the text possibly can't mean that. Jesus certainly didn't mean that this is his physical body. And so we talked about the Zwingli and Luther uh, debate at the Marburg Colloquy last week on our show. So go back and listen to it. But, um, you know, there's much more to it than just that. So, you know, I always encourage people to pick up a book, read history, uh, read something that's outside of your camp. um, Because I'm also finding, too, most people's perspectives of Luther come from a Calvinistic author. And so, you know, I think flame does it, did a great job in one of his songs where he says, you know, we, he acknowledged the homie Luther, but never went past that in his journey as a Calvinist. And I find many of us are, are dealing with that. Um, we, you know, in the early, in the early stages of my walk, uh, I was, you know, I never really paid too much attention to Luther and his teachings. But what I also find with it is, as I started to unpack Luther, I realized that I disagreed with him on on every facet when, if I was still a Calvinist. And so it's interesting that we, they, you know, that they acknowledge Luther and they, you know, would say, yeah, he was a reformer. He, you know, he did all these great things, yada, yada. You know, and then they would instantly, you know, I've heard him go, oh, well, he was angry German drunk or, you know, he liked his beer and, you know, he was, you know, quick to fall into sin. And I was like, come on, people, seriously, everybody falls into sin. But what I, what I'm really starting to understand is fundamentally Lutherans and the reform don't agree on a lot of topics. We have a lot of things in common, but if we were to <clears throat> kind of drill down uh, what do we think to be essential? And we would have very little to agree upon. And and while my position is not to harp on either end, it's to help educate those that are outside of this circle to see and understand why Lutherans believe the way we do. And 
my goal is to use this series to do so, teaching through all that and through all kind of the presuppositional abyss that exists, teaching through all of the junk that has been fueled out onto the internet and you know, getting past those internet theologians and actually getting to real Christian historical theologians, getting to scripture, looking at commentaries, looking at the historical Christian literature and, and going to an understanding there. That is the goal of the show. And so, uh, we're going to get into some of the passages that we have. Um, a couple of them are going to kind of be repeated here, but we talked about it last week with Matthew 26. And, uh, that was where we see the institution of the Lord's supper. We also see it in math in Mark 14 verses 22 through 24. This is what Mark writes. While they were eating, he took some bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, uh, take it. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said, this is my, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Uh, Luke 22 verses 17 through 20, Luke writes this. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it amongst yourselves for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom comes. And when he had taken the bread and gave thanks, he broke it, gave to him saying, this is my body given for you do this in remembrance of me. And so, uh, and the, and in the same way he took the cup after they were eating, saying this cup is poured out for you for the new covenant of, uh, in my blood. So there's two elements here that, uh, that Mark and Luke are aiming at with these passages. And what we should also pay attention to is the differences between how Matthew addresses the Lord's supper versus Mark and Luke. We should also pay attention to that. Matthew traveled with Jesus and would have been present there. Uh, Mark is traditionally viewed as being a follower of one of the apostles, more likely uh, of Peter. Uh, so he wasn't actively traveling with Jesus. He was not one of the original apostles and Luke, we know as being uh, an apostle or a disciple uh, for that matter of Paul, because Luke then goes on and uses what Paul taught him to write the gospel of Luke and to write the book of Acts. And so we know Mark and Luke, neither of them traveled with Jesus and, and neither one of them were, were present when the words of institution were established. That does not mean that there should be any uh, less significance in there, but we should understand that the approach will be different from them than how Matthew conveys it. As we talked about with the text last week, Matthew is actively working to address the finer point of this is poured out for the forgiveness of sin. He's he, Matthew is writing here that as Jesus is giving these words, he's demonstrating that his death will soon take place and the blood that he sheds will be for the forgiveness of sin. Now, if we look at Mark and Luke, we just see um, the, the words essentially being instituted. They're, they're, they're being established. They're not giving us the as deep a dive as Matthew does. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. But when we start to understand the kind of the whole arc of the, like, you know, the overarching theme of the Lord's Supper from the Gospels all through the rest of the New Testament 
it pays us to understand how Mark and Luke address it, uh, as well as Peter and Paul and the other apostles and also Matthew. And so we, we don't try and take scripture and pin it against each other and say, well, Mark and Luke say this, but Matthew over here is saying that. And therefore Matthew's probably just, you know, thinking outside the box or he might be a little wrong or no, we, we don't, we say amen to both. And we say, okay, how, how do we reconcile any of these differences? And there's really not any differences. There's just the omittance of the forgiveness of sin in Mark and Luke's account, which, uh, again, isn't the, the worst, uh, the worst offender that we could essentially have in this. If we were to just simply state that, uh, because, you know, Mark, for instance, you know, he just says, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks, gave to him all drink. This is my, this is the, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. There is no words of assurance. But if you read how like Mark addresses really the overarching gospel uh, approach, he is much more fine-tuned to describing the deeds of Jesus than, uh, than how like Matthew approaches it, where Matthew gives a much more descriptive narrative on who Jesus is and what he came to do. Uh, we still have miracles in Matthew, but Mark really just goes, it's just c- quick, concise, short passages of boom, 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 all the way through his whole gospel. And he really doesn't spend a whole lot of time uh, dwelling on descriptive narrative, whereas Matthew and, and even Luke do uh, in many cases. So I think that helps us to understand the gospel differences here between uh, the, the the you know the three synop, uh, synoptic gospels, John is a different kind of uh, view altogether, and uh, we have to examine John in light of what John's approach to scripture was. Um, we could argue and say that you know John chapter six, uh, you know, is a, is a you know, where Jesus is just talking about the Lord's Supper, but that isn't necessarily the case. That is a completely different context altogether. And really John's directive as he writes it is to describe the deity of Jesus and to really reiterate his opening passages that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so John throughout his gospel will really um, highlight and emphasize the the deity of Christ being demonstrated to all of those. Uh, for instance, we have in John 13, where we have the washing of the disciples' feet, then we have the uh, betrayal uh, prophecy that Jesus gives, and then he establishes a new commandment. And then in John 14, he goes and does a, a few more of the I am statements. In John, John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, John 15 is I am the true vine. Uh, and then we get to really the end of his life within those few ver- chapters. Because in 17, he's in the garden praying. And then at 18, he's arrested. And then at 19, he's uh, crucified. And then at 20, he is resurrected. And then 21 is the end of, his, of John's gospel. So understanding each of the gospels' directive and 
how they take an approach to describing Jesus helps us to understand the different narratives being used. So if we start and from there with that basic understanding like kind of under our belt, then it will help us to understand how the rest of the New Testament that correlates to this uh, will will continue to unfold and help us to understand it. So we're going to spend the rest of the time today looking at some other passages, and then next week, depending on where we get to, we might look at a few more, but we're going to start digging into the early church fathers, and uh, then we will get into uh, the Book of Concord, and we'll go through the text there on the Lord's Supper and how the Lutheran perspective of the uh, Lord's Supper is, that the sacrament. And then we will probably do a Q&A session like we did with baptism. And then we'll do a summary episode and conclude everything. So we won't probably punch out nine or ten episodes, but we'll get a few. And uh, I'm, I can at least see five of them in the horizon. Uh, so that, I think, will help to uh, facilitate this series. And, and again, baptism is, is, is there's, there's a much more complexity i think that's kind of spider webbed through scripture uh and we look at the lord's supper as kind of being a little bit more defined by text uh baptism has a lot more kind of nuances to it uh we also will not on this week but probably next week we're going to look at the passover meal because we will understand the connections between the passover meal and the Lord's Supper are they one and two? Is the Lord's Supper the fulfillment of? We'll dig into that next week um, as we continue our journey through this. So, uh, so next week will be the Passover meal and any other scriptures we missed today, uh, and then we'll get into the early church fathers and, and so on and so forth. So, we kick it off uh, really in Acts chapter two, and this is the beginning to understand. Uh, the early church worship in Acts 2 uh, verse 42 says this, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So they, the early church, the earliest believers, these are the first generation of Christians. They continue to devote themselves to the apostles teaching. This is exactly what Peter and John and James and all of the followers of Jesus, the immediate uh, apostles, turn and taught after the ascension of Christ. So their biggest piece here that Luke highlights is that they they devote themselves to the teaching and to fellowship. So, you know, the community of, of Christians started to form, but also to the breaking of bread and prayer. So we know prayer is fundamental to the Christian walk. Nobody would argue against that, I hope. Uh, so we know and understand prayer, but the breaking of bread is interesting. This is ties back into the other accounts of the Lord's Supper. And, you know, the interesting notion is if we were to go to like uh, John 20, or Matthew 26, verses 26 and through 29, I'm going to read these again. We talked about them pretty heavily last week, but this is what uh, Matthew writes. He says, now they're eating. Uh, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. He took the cup when they had given, when he had given thanks and gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, 
uh, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. I tell you that I will not eat again of this fruit of the vine until the day that I drink of it with you in my father's kingdom. So the first verse, verse 26, Jesus takes bread and breaks it. Now, the breaking of bread is not a symbolical means to the breaking of, of anything else. Uh, in fact, uh, I got a, I got lectured pretty hard by my professor because when we were working through Christian worship, we had to film ourselves doing the Lord's Supper in kind of a practice manner. And so in the film, you could see me actively breaking the bread. And he goes, no, you're not supposed to do that. And uh, the, the reason is because the breaking of the bread, if we understand that Christ is present, is the breaking of his body. Um, this is a pretty common thing in the Calvinist movement. They're going to break the bread to symbolize that this is merely bread and Christ isn't possibly present. So when we see the breaking of bread, this is not the, you know, figurative, you know, and on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread and, you know, you break the bread in front of the congregation. No, the breaking of bread is a symbolizing of they have a loaf and each person comes up and they take a chunk off and hand it to that person. The person is then blessed uh, and then they move on. So that is the breaking of bread. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. They have a loaf of bread. Jesus is breaking it and handing it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. He doesn't break it for each person, nor does he make the breaking uh, of anything of symbolical weight. It is merely just ripping the shreds of bread off of the loaf and handing it to his disciples. And I'm actively uh, doing the hand motions here if you I wanted to know as I break the bread, I'm actively breaking bread and using my hand motions here in my imaginary kitchen that I have in my studio. So I really, again, want to illustrate that when we come across a passage like Acts 2, 42, they're not, you know, the breaking of the bread has no symbolical meaning. It is literally uh, the communal sharing. In fact, Paul actually is going to write a little bit more about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Because he is dealing with an issue in the church in Corinth that they would be hoarding the bread and wine to themselves. The rich or the well-off members of the church would hoard the bread and they would not share it uh, in with the lesser fortunate people. And so we see that uh, Paul is writing a a rebuke to them. Uh, We're going to read a little bit on 1 Corinthians 11 because that's a pretty heavy uh, passage um, to, to handle. And it helps us to, again, really unpack, uh, what is going on here. So Paul opens 11, uh, talking about head coverings, which is a whole another topic. We're not going to get into it for probably quite a long time on the show, but <clears throat> I can tell you this, if you are one who likes head covers, great. If you don't, then don't, uh, you have freedom in Christ. So Lord's Supper, Paul writes this in verse 17 of chapter 11, 1 Corinthians. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because you come together for it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part for there must be uh, factions among you in order for those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Do you have? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? 
Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in the remembrance of me. For as often as you eat and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats of the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of our Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eat uh, body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and many have died, but we have judged ourselves. Truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined and so that we may be not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So when you come together, it is not for judgment, but it is for other things. I will give directions when I come. All right, so there's a lot happening in these passages here uh, from 17 to 34. The biggest highlighted pieces I want to hammer is 23 through 26. And this is uh, Paul literally re-describing the institution of the Lord's Supper. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Uh, He took the cup. This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in the remembrance of me. Again, just because Paul doesn't write for the forgiveness of sin doesn't mean that meaning doesn't and isn't conveyed in this passage. When we eat and drink of the Lord's body and blood... We are uh, remembering and proclaiming his death until he comes. Uh, and, and interestingly enough, that right, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus is where our faith is placed as Christians, that our sins are forgiven because at the cross was where uh, our, our Savior took our sin, became sin, and died. Paul even notes that too in Galatians chapter 1, 2, and 3. I believe there's a whole bunch in there. Uh, Galatians 3, I know for sure, but um, he really hammers the work of the cross in Galatians. Beautiful book. But uh, so, anywho's, uh, the next part of this passage seems like it can be uh, used to kind of manipulate a little bit to uh, those who are probably not so well read in scripture verses 28 and on here. Uh, he says, let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This is pretty heavy in the Calvinist movement that you are to examine yourself. See, look to your fruit. Are you truly a Christian? Well, your fruit are, isn't going to be a demonstration to you. All right. Your fruit, your fruit, your works for that matter, uh, will never provide you enough insurance because what you're going to think to yourself is boy, have I done enough this week to earn this? Am I worthy enough? I, I committed a really bad sin earlier this week. Can, can I still come and partake? Uh, and what Paul's not, or what Paul's really getting at is not that, you know, we need to look to our fruit uh, and, and examine ourselves to remain, to think, think that we're still in the faith. That's actually another passage we'll deal with uh, in the Lutheran 
uh, theological section as we move on past the sacraments. But the premise to this is that Paul's talking about, in the greater context, this church that was abusing the Lord's Supper. So he's giving them instructions saying, this is what you should be doing. He says, you know, that many of you come and eat that don't eat at home and you get full and fat and drunk off the wine and many others are going hungry. And so he's saying, no, eat at home. Then you can come here and eat and drink of the bread and wine. Because anytime we set divisions in the church and we start to say, you can't partake in this, we are then partaking in it and of ourselves to the judgment that would be bestowed upon us because we are uh, preventing somebody from coming to the promises of Christ. So this is one of the big passages. Uh, we've got, you know, 1 Corinthians ten sixteen is not the cup of blessing in which we bless sharing in the blood of Christ, is not the bread in which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. Paul, again, uh, by these two passages, demonstrates for us that the body and blood of Christ are present in the bread and the wine. They're not symbolic. They are not a, a remembrance of in terms of like Jesus just being not present at all, but they are physically there. Jesus is physically there with you. And so uh, there's many other passages that we'll dig into um, over the coming weeks here, but I really want to go next week into the passage on Passover and describe uh, what happens there and uh, and see how the, it connects back to Scripture. And then we'll look at some other passages in the New Testament. Most will probably come from Paul as we uh, unpack uh, this, uh, this, these, these verses. So that is, uh, that is that for this episode. I hope you guys are enjoying this series. We are, you know, actively working through all of this doctrine. And again, we're not exhausting the scripture. This is not mere, this, this is not a you know, 30 minute segment on one verse where we exegete it and and, and dig into all the possible context and all the possible nuances for it. No, we are looking at passages. We're talking about them and making them simple and easy to understand in hopes that you can look at the passage and then see what we're teaching and then understand that going forward as well as possibly if you decide to, if you're especially if you're not a Lutheran, grab some books by Luther or notable Lutheran historic uh, theologians and and read on what is going on here. Grab the Book of Concord and read through uh, the the Augsburg Confession and the Small Cult Articles, Luther's Large and Small Catechism, and understand what the Lutheran reformers were talking about. I encourage you to always continue to read, study, and do your homework because this show is never an exhaustive show. We'll never, ever finish a topic ever on this show because once we think we've concluded it, it will come back around uh, in the future, and we will be talking about it more and more. Uh, so that's going to wrap it for today. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in. I hope you have a wonderful week. We'll be back Friday with another new episode uh, as we are actively working through a particular book in Scripture. Uh, again, I don't know when this episode will air, so I don't know what book will be on when that happens. So we'll be back Friday. Have a great week. God bless.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.